I know we were discussing today that small group time is too short, so it, I can tell. And that's great that you're making those connections and fellowshipping with each other. Um, do you have any questions for me before we begin today? Oh, wow. No, no more. Okay. Diane, what is your question? You actually have two questions today. Okay, extra credit. Oh, that's good. That's a good question. I'm not going to cover that. So let's see what verse 3 says. I thank God who I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. That's where he talks about conscience right there. You probably caught that part. As day and night I constantly remember you in my prayers. He's talking about uh, his clear conscience. He's talking about the God-given ability to tell right from wrong, which um, is, is put inside everyone. Some people sear their consciences. It doesn't necessarily tell you what really is right and really is wrong because your conscience is formed by your background, and so you can come to very different conclusions. So our consciences are to be formed by God's word, by God's truth, so that we know, you know, true right from true wrong. And then he talks about what that causes him to do then, which is to pray. Or to, and then he's also going to talk about, he's just talked about the God whom I serve in verse 1. And so, uh, so that there's that mixture of this is what I do, and then this is, this is what I believe. I don't know if that helps you. I'm not covering that at all, so if it doesn't help you, maybe... Is that okay? Okay. Second question. Oh, hang on. <laughs> yeah, Paul, Paul says, I'm not ashamed, and he tells Timothy not to be ashamed, and he says that Onesiphorus was not ashamed, and so there's this whole uh, big theme of, of shame within this, uh, this entire chapter. And I don't know if I'm going to do a good job of giving you a definition of shame in that culture. I am going to talk about that, sh- that shame was a, was a big issue, that it was you know, almost a culture of shame, as opposed to today in the United States, where, frankly, I think we're pretty shameless, really. And, and I, I think there, there'd be a nice medium. I don't want anybody doing an honor killing because you brought shame on the family, on the one hand. But on the other hand, I think we're pretty shameless. Um, so, and I think our shame has more to do with being literally ashamed of the gospel. In this, in this sense, Paul is saying, don't be ashamed of me because I'm in jail. Uh, but sometimes I think we have a sense of, well, but what will people think of me if I say there's only one way to God and it's Jesus? And, you know, I'm embarrassed by that. But shame in Paul's culture um, was more of a shunning thing, a shunning of people because you were ashamed of them. I don't know if that gives you a better understanding of of what shame was in that culture but yes carol yeah yeah and i am going to talk about that and i did misplace those questions i think yeah okay um but, and, he, and then he, he, he tells Timothy to guard, he says again then, guard the good deposit, just a couple uh, verses after that. And um, I am, actually, I am going to cover the difference between the two. Uh, if I don't, then let's talk about it later again. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, I think I probably have it better in here than I would give it off the top of my head. Yes. 
right, right. The patriarchs of the faith, yeah. It, it doesn't necessarily, yeah, it doesn't necessarily come from the mother, although Mary was the one that was in the line of David. Uh, you know, Mary, the, and, and Mary, um, now, Joseph was from the house and the lineage of David as well, but Joseph wasn't his dad. <laughs> you know? Sorry, Joseph, but, uh, yeah, that caused a little problem between the two of them there. Uh, but, because Joseph knew that, but... Uh, and there, and actually, well, I, yeah, and I, I don't know the answer to that completely. There, and there, but there are, uh, um, a prostitute, Carol, in in Jericho, Rahab. Thank you. I was thinking uh, different names. Rahab is in. I mean, there are. There's a woman in the, in the line in the in the uh, genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. So, I'm pretty sure it's Matthew. It's Matthew, isn't it? Yeah. Brain's a little little out of it today. Luke. Yeah. Um, so I don't know why that is so much that, that, that you're, you're, uh, well, let me say this. Um, Judaism is, being Hebrew is more than being a religion. It's being, it, there's, it's a race. I mean, it's not just an, it's, it's an ethnic identity as well as a religious identity. And in fact, in Israel today, for most Jews, that's really all it is. It is an ethnic identity. They are, um... Uh, in a sense, they are not religious Jews. Now, there are Hasidic Jews, there are Jews that, that are very religious, but most Jews in Israel would consider themselves ethnically um, Jewish, not necessarily religiously Jewish. Um, and I think there's probably a difference between what, what is handed down as, I, I consider you to be Jewish, or, or you are considered to be Jewish ethnically, as separated from the leadership of the the church and the patriarchy of the church and how the content of the religion is handed down. That was very patriarchal. But in terms of, this is a horrible example, but I'm sorry, I'm a history teacher. In um, Nazi Germany, there were um, almost like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it was almost a mathematical a logarithm <laughs> of, of who was Jewish and who was not. And how much uh, of Jewish blood did you have to have in you to be, you know, if you had one Jewish grandparent, were you, you know. And so, you know, the, the matrilineal part of it has more to do with ethnic heritage or what you are considered to be religiously. So because Timothy's mother was Jewish, he was Jewish. But because he was not circumcised to the Jews, he was an apostate Jew. To the Greeks, to the, to the Gentiles, he was Jewish. So he had problems all the way around uh, in terms of people accepting him. Junior high was really bad for Timothy. <laughs> I'm quite certain, as it was for all of us. Wow, okay, way to put the teacher on the hot seat today. Any other questions? None? Okay, well, let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, thank you so much for this day, this time. Thank you so much for these ladies who are here uh, Father, I pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, Father, that what happens here today would bring you glory and honor, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, I want to just start by giving you a little bit of background about 2 Timothy, because it's been a long time since we talked about the background of 1 and 2 Timothy. Um, And uh, it was written after 1 Timothy, which you probably figured out that much. Uh, Remember... (laughs) Remember, 1 Timothy, actually it was also written after Titus, probably, though, and, and if you, you know, have taken your kids through Awana, you know that the books of the New Testament go 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, but actually Titus would have been written before. 1 Timothy was probably written around A.D. 63, A.D. 64, you know, early to mid-60s uh, or so. Timothy, 2 Timothy was written after that, but it had to have been written before A.D. 69, so most um, most theologians would, would put it somewhere between A.D. 68 and A.D. or A.D. 66 to A.D. 68. The reason I say that is we know for sure that Nero um, killed himself on June 8th, A.D. 68. I think it's June 8th or June 9th. Great guy, Nero. And I heard, <laughs> I heard a guy talk, talking about that and said, you know, today we name our sons Paul and we name our dogs Nero. So... <laughs> I think God has a sense of humor. Um, yeah, and, and so we, we also uh, know pretty certainly, I think, that uh, Paul was martyred by Nero, at least the worst of Christian persecution. Nero was a guy who uh, um, lit Christians, lit living Christians on fire to be torches in his backyard. So this was a really bad guy, and, and we're pretty, uh, pretty certain that he uh, was martyred, Paul was martyred by Nero, so that would have to be before a, uh, June 9th, AD 68. And uh, so that means Paul would have had to then written this. And it was while he was in prison uh, that he wrote it. So that's the where part. And, and by the way, this is the last thing we have. Paul probably wrote something after this, but this is the last preserved writing that we have of Paul. Uh, it was written uh, in Rome, in prison, in Rome. And, and partly because it will read later in 2 Timothy that his first defense did not go well, Paul knows that he is very likely to be martyred. And he'll get to that later where he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Um, that he, he realizes that, that uh, he's aware that he does not have much longer to live. And, and this is on his mind from the very beginning of this letter. We'll see in the first two verses, where a uh, first verse, that um, Paul really has this sense of, my time is short. Here's what you need to know. Um, uh, in passing this on to Timothy... And Timothy, for his part, is still in Ephesus, where he was, for first Timothy, still leading the church, lending leadership to the church there. Uh, And the threat of the false teachers is still there, but Paul, uh, it it takes a little bit of a backseat, because Paul is so concerned with, these are the things I need for you to know um, before I'm martyred. Because of that, it takes a little bit of a backseat in this letter. Um, the mood of the letter is very personal and very passionate. And we see this from uh, the first couple verses as well. Um, as Paul approaches his death, as he realizes his death is, is coming, he has a number of things that he wants to make sure he tells Timothy. Uh, and, and so here, Paul, whereas in 1 Timothy, he was commanding a lot. He was saying, I command you to command them to do this. And, and he was charging, giving Timothy a lot of charges to do things. That, there's, there are fewer of those in 2 Timothy. Here he, he appears, Paul appears more as Timothy's mentor than his commander. Um, and it's a, it's a much more personal, very passionate letter. You know, as I... As I was reading through 2 Timothy, um, 
I, I just had this picture of not only of Paul writing, or in this case, dictating it, where he's just so passionate, and we see in the first chapter, in verses 8 through 12, it's like one long run-on sentence where Paul's just, I think, tripping over his own words and, and, uh, and what he has to say because he's so passionate about what he's saying and getting it out. And I also got this picture of Timothy reading it for the first time and, and realizing that he may never see Paul again. Uh, and, and what that must feel like for him. And so I think both in, in its dictating and in its, in its reading that we need, to, we need to feel and understand the passion of this letter, uh, the passion of, of Paul. So beginning at verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul begins by saying he is Paul, an apostle by the will of God. That's very common. There are a number of letters where Paul calls himself an apostle by the will of God. But the next thing he says is according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That is found nowhere else. This is the only letter where um, Paul talks about according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now those words according to mean for the sake of. So he is an apostle by the will of God for the sake of the promise of life. And the promise of life is that promise of eternal life that we have only in Christ Jesus can that be found. It is the promise of eternal life and it is only found in Christ Jesus. And that eternal life, as we've discussed before, doesn't begin when we die. Our eternal lives have begun already on this earth. They haven't been consummated. All you got to do is look around and, and see that life is not perfect yet. It will be one day. And the fact that that life has started now and God has put in our hearts the Holy Spirit as a deposit is our guarantee that the rest of it is true. That it is a life that we will live forever uh, and it can only be found in Christ Jesus. So right away we see what is on Paul's mind. Heaven is on Paul's mind. Eternity with Christ. The promise of life in Christ Jesus is on his mind. So Paul is an apostle by God's will and for the sake of life, eternal life, that can only be, call, be found in Christ. This is Paul's calling and his purpose. And then he says to Timothy, my dear son, very personal. And in fact, if we think back to 1 Timothy and what he, what he called Timothy there, he called him my true son in the faith. Well, that's a nice thing to call someone. But it is not nearly so pers- personal as to say, Timothy, my dear son. Uh, and so again, we see this mood of, of not only passion, but a very personal letter that Paul is, is writing to Timothy. And then in verses 3 through 7, he writes this. And, and by the way, it was, um, it was kind of conventional in letter writing to after the greeting that you would add a prayer to God or to the gods or you would say something flattering to the person. So in one sense, Paul is following convention. In another sense, this is all very, very real for him. Uh, he's not, you know, just making this up to, to make Timothy feel good. He really feels these uh, emotions. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. 
Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that you may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So he says, I I thank the God whom I serve. I thank God whom I serve. Our one uh, Greek word on the board today, I know you're impressed, is latreuo. And that word is serve. And there's no good English equivalent of that word. Because if we say serve, then it leaves out a whole aspect of that word, which means it is an act of worship. If we use worship, then we we think of, okay, you know, we're going to sing, we're going to sing songs or hymns or whatever, and we're going to worship. And, and the sense of latreuo is that our lives are lived as, a, uh, as worship to God. And Paul's service to God was an act of worship to him. Uh, he is, his service to God is an offering um, to God, an offering of worship. Because Paul sees his service to God as an act of worship. I think not only is that word lost in English, I think sometimes that whole aspect of everything we do being worship and our service being worship is also lost in our culture. I think too often we see our service to God um, as, as obligation or sometimes even drudgery. And, and in reality, everything we do, if it is done rightly, is an act of worship to God. It is God that we are serving. And so part of the way we, way we worship him is by serving him uh, and bringing glory to him, and thus it is worship. And Paul says um, that he, uh, he gives thanks to God whom, whom I serve as my forefathers did. So he is connecting his faith, his service, and his worship with his forefathers. Well, guess what? He was Jewish. Uh, He was born Jewish. His mother was Jewish. And so he is connecting Christianity with Judaism here, that it is the same God uh, and that that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And then he goes through a series of remembrances regarding Timothy. And the first one he says is he remembers Timothy in prayer, day and night, constantly praying. He had a consistent pattern of prayer, day and night, constantly. This is a picture of perseverance in prayer. It it wasn't a check on a list. It wasn't a, oh yeah, doggone it, I forgot to pray for Timothy again. He was consistently persevering in prayer because Timothy needed his prayers. Uh, We all need prayer. And, And so this is a tremendous reminder to us, and we'll talk more about this later, but to persevere in prayer for those we love. And then secondly, he recalls Timothy's tears. Uh, and, and we don't know for sure what this is uh, referring to, but it was likely referring to the last time Timothy and Paul saw one another. That's recorded for us in Acts 20, where the Ephesian elders, including Timothy, came to Miletus to meet Paul as he was on his way to Jerusalem. And Paul had been told, and it had been prophesied over him, that if he went to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested. Well, duh, Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul said, no, I'm going. I'm called to go and I'm going. Yeah, 
I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to get arrested. But God has called me to go and I'm going anyway. And so when Paul says, I will likely never see any of you again in the flesh, they're all crying. Uh, And Acts 20 tells us that. I'm sure Paul was too. Uh, And so I think that that's probably what Paul is referring to here, is that that meeting at Miletus when they were all in tears over uh, Paul going to Jerusalem and not seeing him again. And then he says, I long to see you. I love that, that picture. I long to see. I got to tell you that just before I taught, um, Becky Moltemeyer, who is, is as dear to me as anyone can be, who I have seen very little over the last two months, came walking in to talk to me. And I screamed, it's you! And I ran and hugged her. Because I longed to see her. And, and I think that's what Paul is talking about here. It's such a, a glimpse into their relationship. Um, as I was writing this, the example I thought of was back when I was dating Jeff and was very much in love, you know, that whole thing. And, and he, I lived in West Omaha because when I picked out the apartment, I was not dating Jeff. And he lived in Bellevue, and he was going to school, and I was teaching. And so there would be mornings when I would wake up and I would realize the first thing I would think is, I'm not going to see him today. And it just, I wanted to see him. And on those mornings when I woke up, when I knew because of our schedules that I was not only going to not see him that day, I was not going to see him the next day, I'd be like, why even get out of bed? (laughs) You know? And then, oh yeah, I have a job. I got to get up. I got to go to work. So, but, but I longed to see him. I wanted to be with him. And that's the sense that Paul gives us here. And I'm sure Timothy felt very much the same way. And then thirdly, he was reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. Um, and, and in fact, it literally means having been reminded. And, and that leads me to believe that maybe he had just received word about Timothy and how things were going and, and how Timothy's faith had been growing. I've just been reminded again of the sincere faith that lives in you, that was handed down to you from your grandmother and your mother, generations of faith that have been handed down to you. And Paul says, I'm persuaded that that faith now dwells in you. That word persuaded is a very strong word. And in fact, it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 8.38, which is one of my very favorite passages, maybe my very favorite passage in all of, the, uh, all of Scripture, where Paul says, For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's a very strong word. And so Paul says, I am convinced, Timothy, that that same faith, that your grandmother had, that your mother had, now lives, it dwells in you. What a beautiful picture that that not only is that the strong word of, of I'm convinced, but that same deep faith, it dwells in him, it lives in him, uh, it, it abides deeply within Timothy. Donald Guthrie puts it this way, he calls it an indwelling faith. I love that picture of faith taking up residence in our lives, the permanence of that. And then in verses 6 and 7, he reminds Timothy of something. So Paul has remembered him in his prayers. He's been reminded of this sincere faith. He has remembered uh, his, his, their last meeting, and now he says uh, he is going to remind Timothy. Uh, of something in verses six and seven. And it says this, for this reason, I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God, which was in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, 
of love and of self-discipline. So he is reminding Timothy, and he, he begins by saying, for this reason. In other words, he's saying, because you have this indwelling faith living inside of you that has been handed down to you for generations, I remind you, because of your faith, I remind you to fan into the fl- a flame the gift that God has given you. Now, it's not necessary to think that the gift had died down, that somehow he had neglected the gift, because our spiritual gifts, um, whether, whether they are, have died down or not, need to be nurtured. We need to use them. Um, and so uh, it isn't necessary to think, although some commentators think that maybe he was neglecting it. But that's not true. I, and, and one of the things that this, this verse always reminds me of is um, driving to an FCA meeting many, many, many years ago, um, with Stan Parker, who I've, I know I talked, I've talked about before. And he gave me a book, and he said, look, Amy, here's the deal. I've noticed you have the gift of teaching, and I don't think you should just be content where you are. I think, you know, you need to be like Timothy. And he, he quoted this verse, and fan that gift into a flame. And I think this book will help. And in fact, that book was a huge help to me as a teacher. And, and so he was saying to me what Paul is saying to Timothy. Look, you have this gift. Don't just be content to have the gift, but use it and fan it into the flame and nurture it and build it within yourself. Um, and so, you know, uh, either way, um, well, it's, it's, uh, I'm sorry. Don't be timid about it, Timothy, um, because God has not given you a spirit of fear and has not given us a spirit of fear or a spirit of timidity. Now, what does he mean when he says a spirit? Does he mean, uh, it could mean the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living within you is not timid. Uh, it could be that it's just the human spirit, that, that, that God, the spirit of the believer is not timid. You know, it's, uh, in fact, it's hard to tell. It's not capitalized in the NIV, which means the NIV has chosen to interpret it as the human spirit. Uh, but I've got two different answers from three different theologians. So it's really hard to tell. And I'm not sure it matters either way because either way, God has given the spirit to us. Whether it's the spirit that he has placed inside us, his Holy Spirit, or whether it's the human spirit that he is forming and shaping within us. Either way, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And so Paul is telling Timothy, look, you have the power to act. You have the power to lead by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit within you. Um, and, uh, but it is not just brute power because it is controlled by, it is informed by, it is measured by love. So it's not, you know, some sort of authoritarian crackdown. I've got power, but of power and of love. So it is controlled by that power. And then thirdly, Self-discipline, which you probably know that some, um, some translations say a sound mind, which also fits in with First and Second Timothy. But that word self-discipline literally means to take responsibility, to be moderate, or to be reasonable, to act reasonably um, about something. So the spirit that God has given us is not afraid. It is not fearful. It is not timid. Rather, it acts powerfully, yet reasonably, in love. Now, what about Timothy? I mean, did Timothy particularly need this verses? It's possible, because 
there's a lot of places in First and Second Timothy where he's kind of cheering Timothy on and telling him, you know, to be strong and, and giving him encouragement. And so encouragement. So it's possible that Tim that Timothy was sort of naturally timid or naturally shy, that his personality um, was not real strong, and so he needed some encouragement in this. Of course, that would be comparing him to Paul, <laughs> who was bold. I, I remember years ago writing a, a Christmas letter and saying that Lane, he was probably about four at the time, and saying that Lane was, was the most shy of my children, that he, he was much shyer than his brother and sister. And then I wrote, then again, 98% of the population on the planet is shyer than his brother and sister, and so it would make sense. And so I think, you know, Timothy may have been a little bit timid um, and, and needed this encouragement. I don't know that we can know that for sure, though. And then everybody wants to know, well, what was the gift that, that was there by the laying on of my hands? What was his spiritual gift? I don't, I'm not sure we need to know what his spiritual gift was. We need to know what our spiritual gifts are and to, that we are to be fanning them into a flame. But kind of putting two and two together or, um, you know, kind of deciphering, reading between the lines, uh, it's possible that it had to do with his leadership, that maybe it was a gift of leadership or a gift of, of teaching or preaching or some sort of administration that would be helpful to him in his ministry in Ephesus. Um, more importantly, I think, for us is to determine what is this relationship between um, God's uh, uh, gifts, God's spiritual gifts that he gives us and our responsibility in nurturing those gifts. Because spiritual gifts are from God. They're not something that we can, you know, give to ourselves. I think I want that gift. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is different. Uh, this is just a personal bugaboo, kind of like Psalm and Psalms. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit, and it's a package deal. You can't say, you know, I really, I have the love one, the patience one I'm working on. No, it's a fruit of the Spirit, and we have it all. Um, but gifts aren't things that I, I really want this one. I would really much for, no, God's already chosen for you and he's given it to you. So gifts are from God and he gives them to us and he is the one that causes them to grow. But we also have a responsibility to tend them, to not say, you know what? I really don't like that gift. I don't want that gift. So I'm not going to work on it. We, we are responsible to fan them in to a flame. In fact, as I told you, that word self-discipline means to take responsibility uh, and to act reasonably. So we are to act on the gifts that God has given us and use them. Um, 10, 11-ish, 10, 10 years ago, I was on a beach celebrating our combined 40th birthdays with my college roommate, and I was sitting on a beach in St. Pete's um, uh, Florida, St. Pete's Beach, Florida, near Tampa, with my very best friend, who is not shy. Uh, and her name's Chrissy. And we were on the beach with the cabana and the whole thing. And I was under the cabana, and she was not. She got burned. I didn't. Um, and she turned to me out of the blue and said, Amy, what's your gift? I was like, what? You know, the beach, the sun. I went, it's teaching. And she said, hmm, are you using it? And I said, leave me alone. <laughs> but she wouldn't. She was bold. And she said, I, I believe. And I led her to Christ. At this point, I'm like, why? <laughs> but she said, I believe that God is calling you to use your gift of teaching in your church, and you're not doing it. So here's what you're going to do. When you get home, you're going to call up the director of women's ministries, and you're going to say, I need to meet with you. And you're going to go in and tell her, put me to work. I'm a teacher. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? 
But I listened. And I got home. And we'd been at Brookside like six years. And I, I called up Becky and I said, yeah, I need to meet with you. And I walked in and I said, there's something you don't know about me. Um, I'm a teacher. That's why I'm here. Because Becky called me and said, would you like to teach women's ministry in women's ministry? That's why I'm here. Because Chrissy had the guts to say, fan into a flame the gift that God has given you. You're sitting on it, Amy. You need to use it. And so that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Timothy, you've been given a gift. You know you have it. Fan it into a flame. We are all to do the same. And then Paul tells him to not be ashamed. He says, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. So Paul says, do not be ashamed. And by the way, this whole thing is one long sentence. There's no punctuation and he's just on a roll on this. Uh, I don't think he even took a breath. And the theme of, this, uh, of these verses is shame and suffering. And he begins by saying, do not be ashamed of the gospel or of me in prison. And as I mentioned before we started, there was a strong sense of shame in this culture. Uh, and to have a, a, a friend or a family member put in prison would have been very shameful, uh, even if it was unjust that the mighty Paul was now in prison. Uh, and, and we still see this sense of shame, this culture of shame in the Middle East today. Our country, not so much. Um, but uh, it would have been shameful. There would have been uh, a temptation to be ashamed of, of what had happened to Paul. Uh, and he says, don't do that. And, and then he says, therefore, so that word so means therefore. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Um, and so this is, this is connecting these verses with what has ju- he has just said. And so what Paul is saying is because God has given you a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline, you don't need to be ashamed. You have been given the power to overcome that sense of shame. You have the ability to resist it because of the qualities that God has put in you. The emphasis of this whole passage, um, I love this as we we look through this, is is on God's sovereignty. Notice he says, join me in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God. And, And then he says that God has saved us and has called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but how? By his purpose. And his grace. So we owe our salvation, our sanctification, which means our growing in Christ's likeness, um, and our ability to persevere through suffering to a sovereign God who has called us by his own purpose, his sovereignty. Put another way, God's grace is founded on his eternal purpose. In other words, his sovereign will. 
It is by his sovereignty that he has chosen us and he has saved us. So why do we need to be ashamed of anything? And he says that this was given to us not when we were saved. He says this grace was given before the beginning of time. Jesus was never God's plan B. He didn't say, "Uh uh-oh, they sinned. Now what do I do? I know, I'll send my son. No! Before the beginning of time, God knew that he would send his son. Jesus was God's plan, is God's plan and purpose from the beginning of time. But then he says, but it has now been revealed. That, that it, was, it was the plan and it was given before the beginning of time, but it was not revealed until Jesus' death and resurrection, meaning now. Or better yet, it was revealed through Jesus' death and resurrection, through his appearing. That's what he means by his appearing. And then he says that Jesus has destroyed death. Literally, that part of it says, who, Jesus, who on the one hand has destroyed death and on the other hand has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. But how can he say that Jesus has destroyed death? We still die. We will, if Jesus doesn't return, we will all die. So how can we say that Jesus has destroyed death? He has destroyed death. He will destroy death completely in the end. And we know that is true because of what he has already done. Which, he has made, which is that he has made death no longer a threat to us. We need not fear death because we know what will happen. Uh, for Christ, by his death and resurrection, which is the gospel, has given us life and immortality. So we have nothing to fear. Furthermore, Christ's resurrection is the proof positive that one day even physical death will be destroyed completely and will be no more. If you want to read more about that, look at Revelation 21 and 1 Corinthians 15, if that would encourage you. Um, And then Paul says um, to not be ashamed. He says uh, in verses 11 and 12, he says, and of this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed. Because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Um, He is suffering. He is suffering because of the gospel. Because he has been a faithful uh, herald and apostle and teacher spreading the gospel. But he is not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? Because he knows who he has believed. Notice he does not say, I know what I believe. He says, I know whom I have believed. For Paul, it was very personal. His faith was not not so much content as it was a person and his relationship with Jesus. Not that content doesn't matter because content is important, but it is because of who Jesus is that we have and know that content. Um, And then again, we have that same word that we have in Romans 8. He is convinced. He knows who he has believed and that he can be trusted, that God can be trusted. And and that that is given in the perfect tense, which means for those of us that aren't English teachers, that it is a continuous thing, that it continues on. That, that it is not a one-time thing, that, that he can continually be assured by who God is. And then he says, I am convinced that he will keep what I have entrusted to him. Well, what has Paul entrusted and to whom? In this case, 
He probably means his ministry, that he has entrusted his ministry to God, and he knows that God can be trusted with that. Uh, So essentially what Paul is saying, I have entrusted to God what he has entrusted to me, which is this ministry. And that he is able to keep it until that day. That day is the final day. The day of judgment. The day of Christ's second appearing. His second coming. And then he does give a charge to Timothy. He says to Timothy, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So this harkens us back to to 1 Timothy. Again, as he did in 1 Timothy, he's telling him to guard the good deposit. He's talking about sound teaching. The deposit in this case is that sound teaching. Keep as a pattern of sound teaching. Don't deviate from it. A pattern in this case, that word means a detailed model that is to be followed scrupulously. Timothy, in fact, nobody can deviate from that. Keep as a pattern. Stick to the pattern of sound teaching, of truth. And that is the deposit that he is to guard. Um, I'm going to skip by this part because we need to finish up. But, um, and then he goes on in verses 15 through 18 uh, talking about Anisiphorus. And he says, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. I had to work on this. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So Paul had been deserted. All the people from Asia, from where Ephesus was that were in Rome, had deserted him. This doesn't necessarily mean that they deserted the faith. It does mean they were likely ashamed of Paul and uh, couldn't stick it out. And so he feels alone. It's a very personal statement that he's making of of how he feels about this. But not so, Anisiphorus. Anisiphorus was not ashamed. And so he's holding Anisiphorus out as a model for Timothy, saying, be like him. Don't be ashamed of me. And Anisiphorus refreshed Paul, which perhaps means just by his presence, he refreshed Paul. Um, But it also could literally mean that he brought... Uh, material things and food and, and drink to him that he needed. And so because of this, Paul says, I, I wishes, grants, prays for mercy on Anisiphorus, on his household. Because he prays for the household, some people think that Anisiphorus is dead. There's no way to really know for sure. But because, um, A, uh, it, a man's household was very connected to the man himself, it wouldn't be unusual for him in praying for Anisiphorus to pray for his household, and B, because it would be really, really unusual for him to pray for someone to, for God to grant mercy for someone who was dead. This would be the only place in all of the Bible that that would happen. Because of those two things, I think that Anisiphorus is probably alive, and he's just saying what he wishes for Anisiphorus. Well, let's, let's um, sum this up quickly. I want to go back to this verse because this is the verse that really stuck to me as I was reading through this week. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. I remember hearing a Christian comedian years ago who who came to Christ mostly because his grandmother was praying for him. He said, if you're not a Christian and you have someone praying for you, give up. 
Just give up. Especially if it's your grandmother. Give up. Uh, And I love what Walter Liefeld says about this verse. He says, the most important factor of of all in the life of Timothy may be discerned in these few words in verse 3. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Timothy needed those prayers. You know what? We all need those prayers, don't we? Yeah. So then why don't we pray more? Why don't I pray more? I have a consistent quiet time. I have time alone in the word of God daily. It's consistent. Um, but my prayer time, not so much. Here's the, here's the way prayer goes for me. If I'm asked to pray, I pray immediately. If I get an email, I pray immediately. If I get something on Facebook, I pray immediately. And then I pray as a person comes to mind. But in terms of a consistent time where, that I set aside for prayer, forget about it. It's not happening. Um, and, and, I, and I wonder why that is. And, and here's the bottom line, and um, <clears throat> it's not pretty. Committed, consistent prayer takes discipline. And I don't like discipline very much. How's that for a Bible teacher? I believe that prayer is beneficial. I believe that it is important. And I know that we are commanded to be people of prayer. And I sense, I really sense that God is calling me to ump, up the ante in my prayer life. In fact, this week has been a little bit different for me. I don't know what that will look like yet, uh, but I know it's going to involve discipline. Yay. Maybe you sense God is calling you to su- the same thing. Maybe you're saying, you know what, day and night, constantly in prayer? No, that's not me. And maybe you sense God is calling to you, you to that. Maybe you sense God calling you to up the ante in some other area of your life, and you're aware of that. I, I was hoping to have time for us to just write that down and pray over it. Unfortunately, uh, I, I've gone long again today. But think about that, ladies. What is God calling you and saying, look, I want you to know me better in this area. I want you to, to walk alongside me better in this area. And maybe write that down. Uh, and, and I'll pray. And, and close us in prayer. Father God, thank you for Paul's example to us. Thank you that, that night and day, constantly, he was in prayer for Timothy. Father, I, I pray that you would place that same desire for prayer, that same desire for communion, to hear from you and to talk to you in prayer, not only in my heart, but in all of our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I swore I wasn't going to go long today. Sorry.